And good morning, all. It's good to see you. I know we're, we've been through a strange year, and we're going through a seasonal shift and a year shift, and people traveling, and COVID has hit us, and uh, different things. But we're here this morning, and we welcome those who are watching um, through the internet. May the Lord be with you as you worship with us today. Um, let's, let's pray. And um, if nothing happens today other than just that God says something to you, would you pray that he would speak to you as we go into his word? We can hear his word. It can bounce off of us, but we want to have receptive hearts. So let's, let's pray and ask him to speak to us today. Lord, we come to your word. We're desperate for your word. We're desperate for you. Our lives and ourselves, the world in itself, life without you is vapid. It's empty. It's desert-like. And so, Lord, we, we need you, and we come to you today. And the way you speak to us is through your word primarily, but also through the things that we see and through the people that we know. And so speak to us now through your holy scriptures that we might learn something today, that you're close to us, that you're saying something to us. You want us to respond. You want us to have a relationship with you. And so do that just now as we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Billy Bob Harrell had fallen on hard times. This happened just a few short years ago. He's one of many who are like him. He suddenly won $31 million in the Texas lottery jackpot. It seemed he had finally found a way to support his family and put his money troubles behind him. He was very generous with his winnings, helping his family, his church, needy parishioners. But the request for money didn't stop coming. He made some bad investments, there was the constant demand for more and more and more from outsiders. There's a lot of stress when you have that kind of money and that kind of privilege given to you. This put a strain on his family. His marriage quickly ended, and other family members were fighting with each other, constantly at odds. He said, Winning the lottery was the worst thing that ever happened to me. On a day when he was scheduled to go to dinner with a friend, Billy Bob Harrell decided that he had had enough. He died less than two years after his miraculous lottery win by taking his own life. The reason why I begin with that story is that when people win the lottery, Uh, There is every reason for great joy. It's obvious. Who wouldn't want to win $31 million? But many people don't realize that when you win that kind of prize, when you have that kind of an asset, you suddenly inherit great responsibility and great tensions. You suddenly have new problems you never had before. And if that responsibility is not received properly, and met with responsibility and wisdom, it can end up destroying one's life. In a different sense, but in somewhat the same way, the coming of Christ is a great thing. 
But his coming also creates a great problem for us. The problem of our response to what God has spoken. And if his coming is not met with a proper response, it can destroy us. And so today, I want to talk to you about properly responding to the coming of Christ. Christmas has come. We've, through the Advent season, been waiting, anticipating the coming of Christ. Now Christ is here. Christmas has come. God has spoken to us afresh in Christ. But how do we rightly respond to Christmas? I want to talk to you um, with this passage today um, in Matthew chapter 2 that Roger just read for us. It's a familiar passage in many ways, the story of the Magi. But there's a great um, teaching in here that enlightens us to how we ought to respond to Jesus. And I want to share it with you, okay? As you notice from Roger's reading of that and from your own memory that there are three main characters in this story. The main characters are the Magi, these guys who come from the east. We'll get to them in a second. There's Herod, who is the king at the time. And there is the, um, the scribes, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of the day. We want to look at each of these three and look at their responses to the coming of Christ and see you know, what that does to inform us about our response to the coming of Christ. The very first one uh, that we come to, of course, in the text here, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. If you were in the first century and you read that, as soon as it said, in the days of Herod the king, if we had some theme music going, you'd hear this, dun, 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 you know, because now introduced after the coming of Christ here in chapter 1, we suddenly have uh, things happening after the birth of Jesus that the people of that day were very familiar with. Herod was a ruthless ruler. He was cruel, he was crafty, he was cunning, and he was not kind. And the people of his day realized what this setting involved. Um, he uh, came into power in uh, B 37 B.C., and he died around 4 B.C. Now you think 4 B.C., that's four years before Christ. But actually, Christ probably was born in 4 B.C. I know, it doesn't make sense, but that's really uh, what, what's happening. And this is the very final year of Herod's life. He had a long and successful career. He built many buildings. He built temples to pagan gods, the Roman gods of the day, which were kind of the cultural centers. He was very uh, shrewd in that he built the temple in Jerusalem up for the Jewish people. This is the Herod that came to Zerubbabel's temple that had been built back hundreds of years ago after the exile of the people from Babylon and Persia. And uh, he had taken this very humble building, which never had achieved the glory of Solomon's temple, and he had grown it up. He had invested great amounts of money. And so that by the time Jesus came on the scene, this is the temple of Jesus' day. He built that temple. And he did that so that he might endear himself to the Hebrew people. 
Herod had 10 wives throughout the course of his lifetime. It wasn't a good thing to be a wife of Herod. Um, if he didn't like you, he would dismiss you or kill you. And uh, one of his wives, though, was a Jewish uh, person, was a Jewish, was a Hasmonean, and he thought that by marrying her that he would also endear himself to the Jewish people. And his reign, he was such a shrewd uh, leader that uh, Caesar actually rewarded him with more territory. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, Herod is actually the ruler over all the territory that King Solomon had ruled over. And he liked to refer to himself as being the king of the Jews. Now, Herod, when he um, heard that the wise men had come into town and that these foreigners had come in from out of country and were asking, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? He heard this, it says in, in verse 3, and he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. As the old saying goes in the family that when mama is not feeling well, and is upset, the whole family is upset, that kind of thing, that, that kind of dynamic. Well, this is on the kingly level. When Herod's upset, everyone around him is upset. All Jerusalem is upset, and they're stirring with this sound, with this story of a newborn king, the king of the Jews, and that Herod was on the rampage, on the lookout. So Herod wants to find out some information, and so he has people, information at his disposal. He wants to find out two things, where and when. So he finds the Jewish leaders. They're the ones who know where. And he calls them into his premises and he says, I want to know where the Messiah was, is going to be born. And they were able to peg that for him and tell him it's in Bethlehem of Judea. So there's the place. And then he thought, hmm, time. What timing? How recently did these guys see this star? And so they inquired of the Magi of the time. And of course, they said that we had seen the star in the east, and we don't know what time they told him, but we know later in his response, when he killed all the babies that were two years old and under, that probably they had been there for several months. This was several months after Jesus' birth, up to a year and maybe as much as two, but probably several months to a year's time after Jesus' And so his, um, it says that Herod, when he heard this information, told the Magi to leave, to go to Bethlehem, to search out for the child, and when they found him, to report back to him so that he might come and worship that child also. Herod was very shrewd, and there's, they said that he was a very good actor. He... Um, would feign. He actually orchestrated the death of some people, not by directly killing them, but by creating stories, creating circumstances that would have them killed, and he wouldn't have to be implicated directly. So he would put a good front on, as many politicians and many leaders do. And he uh, basically um, feigned the idea that he was going to worship them, and it seems like as if the Magi would have returned uh, if they hadn't later heard in the dream not to go back. So he was a very convincing person. So we find that Herod uh, finds out where and when, and we know not from this passage, but later down in verse 16 and following, that Herod did seek the information out because he wanted to kill the children in Bethlehem and do away with this Messiah. Now, 
I have to kind of keep uh, it short with these three characters because I want to draw some, some, uh, some analogies and some lessons we should learn from the story of Herod. The first thing is this, and that is that Herod, whether we like it or not, the story of Herod is part of Christmas. We were eating our Christmas brunch and we talked about this weird year and the COVID thing and got talking about COVID and someone said, let's stop talking about COVID because this is Christmas. And they had a point and we did stop talking about COVID and talked about other things. But there's a sense in which COVID is a part of this Christmas. And Herod was a part of that Christmas. And Herod is around all the time, and Christ and his church deal with Herod all the time. We can think about that on a personal level. You know people that will not have anyone else in their life who will tell them what to do. I will have no rival in my life. I am the king of my life, and I will have no Jesus. We have lots of individual Herods around. You know them, I know them. Sometimes we can play that part. Culturally, we're rejecting Jesus, anything traditional, anything godly, anything absolute, anything moral. We will not be ruled over by some ancient creed and code. We'll make up the do's and don'ts as we go along. That's the culture we live in. We live in a Herod culture. And government, just like government was the prosecutor of that day and was going to literally take the Son of God, the Messiah, and put him to death. Governments today do the same thing. If we were in China, North Korea, many Arab countries, African countries, it's illegal to be a Christian and to espouse your faith. And so Herod is a part of Christmas. Herod is a part of life. Christianity is not something lived in a bubble, in a fantasy land, in a precious moments domain over here where everything's sanitized from the Herods of this world. But Jesus, when he came, God, when he spoke, he came to speak right in the midst of what Herod was doing. Herod is with us. So the lessons we want to learn from Herod is don't be like Herod, first of all. Jesus is still king, and Herod died a few months later. That's always what happens to Herod. So don't be Herod. And the second thing we want to learn is that Herod doesn't have the last word. And also in the meantime, as we live with Herod in this day, is that uh, we want to know how to wisely navigate Herod. We're supposed to obey our rulers. We know that on the one hand. And yet there's sometimes when rulers ask us to do things that we have to disobey when God tells us to do something else. And that's clearly in Scripture as well. So we have those two things. So Herod is the first thing. Please glean from that something for yourself and something as you live in the world that God would say to you through that example of Herod. Now moving on, the Magi are the main, um, the main actors here, the main characters in this story. And so their response is the one that we want to follow. This is the main thrust of the passage. So listen up. How should you respond to Christmas? How should I respond to Christmas? Listen to what uh, the Magi do here and take examples from, an example from them and of them. First of all, the Magi are referred to as being these wise men who come from the East. 
Matthew necessarily and on purpose keeps them very vague. We know little. He could have said they came from Persia, they came from the town and such and such. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. Very vague reference. All he wanted to communicate was that these guys were from some faraway country. They were non-Jewish, and they came a long distance. That's what serves his purpose in this story. They came to, them, uh, came to Jerusalem from the east, they said. And they had heard that he who has been born of the uh, king of the Jews was on the scene, and they came so that they might uh, worship him. And so it tells us a couple of things. One, how would you know from the appearance of a star that the king of the Jews was born? I mean, did it have, like, lights in the sky? King of the Jews was born? It wasn't, it wasn't that, that specific. It was just an appearance, some changing in the constellations. These guys were scientists. They were the educated elites. They were the ones who would give advice to the king. And so they, had, they were the educated uh, ones to, to know about the physical world and the heavens and how things worked. This is what they did, and they counseled the king. But how did they know that a star had to do with something happening in Judea? And the answer seems to be by implication is that these, these wise men were probably from the east, that is from Persia, and from the time we know that Daniel in the Old Testament and his associates were called magi. Um, they were the court sorcerers, the court magicians, the court wise men, the court counselors. And it seems that they had the seed planted through Daniel's prophecies, I believe, that they knew that Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon would give way to Persia, and Persia would give way to the Greeks, and the Greeks would give way to the Romans. And Daniel spoke of a king who would come at that time, who would put an end to all other kings, who would be the king of the world, the king of the universe, the king of all. So when they saw the star, and they knew about the prophecies, and they knew about the general timing, they put those things together, and that's why they came. They acted on the information they had. That's one of the first things that we want to take uh, home with us, and that is when God gives you information, don't sit on it, but use it, act on it, do something with the information he has. It may not be complete, you may not be as privileged as somebody else, but he's given you his word, he's given you information to act on, he's given you some knowledge of him. Act on what he's told you. Act on what he's given you. When they, uh, it says they also came in uh, looking for the one who was born king of the Jews, why would they see a need to come if he was the king of the Jews? They're not Jewish. And I think the implication here is that the king of the Jews wasn't just the king of the Jews, but the king was their king as well. There's a personal element that comes through in this story that tells that tells us that they had a personal investment in this. And then it says that they came to Jerusalem. This is not like coming down the street or next door. This isn't like driving out of town uh, a few minutes. This is coming about an 800-mile journey or hundreds of miles over the period of several months at great expense to come and do this. And that tells me that one of the ways we respond to Jesus is by Letting him be the Lord of our resources, our time, our investments, our money, all that we are. There's no expense too great to gain Jesus. How are you 
invested? How are you pursuing Christ? What's it costing you? Is there something that you're holding back that ought to be given to him? And uh, then when they come down um, and they get the word from Herod, Herod may have actually filled in a blank for them. It's not Jerusalem where the king is, but it's actually specifically in Bethlehem, about six miles outside of Jerusalem, about a two-hour walk away. And um, they went there, and they pursued the child, and the star reappeared, came over the house. They went to that house. They saw it was Mary and the baby. They said, this is it. They fell down. And they worshipped him. And notice that they brought him gifts. And they brought him gifts that were costly and gifts that were meaningful. Gold, a gift for a king, frankincense, which just means pure incense, which talked of his priestly role that he would play as being the one who reconciles man and God. And myrrh, which is basically um, something that would make things smell better. So his humanity, his humanness, as he would actually struggle and sweat and die, it was something that was for his human um, encouragement and resuscitation. And upon his death, myrrh was used as well in burial um, spices and whatnot to make the awful just a little less awful. So they gave gifts that were of great cost and gifts that were of great meaning. And so I think it's a clue for us. Again, the expense. Is there something you're holding back from Jesus? Something I'm holding back from Jesus that really thoroughly belongs to him. And as you engage with people, are you engaging in meaningful ways, giving gifts to Jesus by doing so? I want to scamper on to the third group here, the Magi being the one that we want to take most of our lessons from, but I can't help but mention this third group. They're mentioned the most briefly, and that is the, um, the Jewish leaders, chief priests and scribes of the people, as they're called in verse 3. And the reason why I want to focus on them is because Matthew, even though he just mentions them here briefly, the rest of his gospel is all about them, and he builds more and more and more on them. And what we find here from their reaction to Jesus is that when they were asked the questions, they knew the answers. And yet they were unmoved by that information. They were unmoved. These were the uh, chief priests, so they knew all about what it was to the sacrificial system and to come into God's presence to lead the people there. The scribes were basically lawyers, just like we have lawyers of public law. These would be lawyers of religious law. And so these people knew their Bible inside and out, which is why Herod went to them and said, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They would have the answers. But they knew the answer, but we don't hear anything more after they recite from Micah's prophecy about Bethlehem, Judah, how the ruler comes out of Judah, to shepherd my people Israel, that's it. We don't hear anything more about their response. There was the lack of inquisitiveness is, is stunning. Herod, why do you ask? The Messiah is supposed to be, why are you asking that, Herod? Um, if they had gotten word that there was, uh, the king of the Jews was born, that was the big buzz of Jerusalem, 
Were they hanging out at Mary and Joseph's house with the child, you know, spending time there, you know, just getting as much as they could of worshiping the, the Christ child? No, we, we don't find any of that. And so the implication here is by silence. And the reason why I think Matthew mentions it here is because the wise men, this whole story appears in the Gospel of Matthew for a very unique and specific reason. It's in this story that Matthew really presents the rest of what he's going to say in the rest of his gospel. And the implication that he brings is that the Jewish people, while they're close to the things of God, did not respond to the things of God, but that outsiders, foreigners, Gentiles, non-Jewish people are the ones who respond, responded to him and were the people out of which he was making this new nation. If we had a little more time, I'd take you through a, a, just a, a wonderful, just a, it's, it's a mind-blowing picture of the Gospel of Matthew. But just, just take a couple of snapshots with me. Chapter 1, genealogies. Matthew presents Jesus as being the son of Abraham and David, the true heir of the promises of God, right? We know that. But what we don't pick up on is the fact that in the genealogies, Matthew mentions four women. Now, this isn't a pro-woman thing. This is just, there were women with every generation. You know, just they weren't mentioned. Only the guys were mentioned. That's the way it was in that day, right? Sorry, sorry, gal, sorry. But why were they mentioned? Because all four of those women were Gentiles. If it's a genealogy, a physical genealogy, there can't be any guys who are not Jewish. But there are four women who contributed. And Matthew's point is that God's plan for the Jews has always incorporated the Gentiles. When the promise was made to Abraham, the Gentiles were to be blessed. He was just a conduit through which they would be blessed. Chapter 2, the Magi. The Magi come from hundreds of miles away to worship the Christ child and bring expensive and thoughtful gifts, whereas the Jewish leaders wouldn't even travel down the road a two-hour's walk to witness what they had heard people buzzing about. How disinterested, how inactive. What an indictment. Chapter 3, John the Baptist comes on the scene and says, Repent, for God's kingdom is at hand. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. They say, what do you mean, us to repent? That's what, that's what non-Jewish people do, Gentiles do, to become Jews and become like us. Why are you asking us to repent? And John the Baptist says, don't put any stock in the fact that you're children of Abraham. I'm God is willing, God is able to make children of Abraham out of these stones. He can make children of Abraham out of whoever he wants to make them out of. Chapter 8, the centurion. Don't come into my house, Lord. I'm not worthy for you to step into my house. I'm a Gentile. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. Oh, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. The Syrophoenician woman who was a Canaanite from uh, Sire and, um, uh, Tyre and Sidon over on the coast. She said, Jesus, I have my daughter who is demon-possessed. Would you please say the word and she'll be freed? And he said, but I've come to speak to the household of Israel. It's not right to give the bread uh, for the children, to give it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. He says, oh, woman, you have such great faith. May it be to you according to your faith. And it goes up and down uh, through the whole parade of Gentiles that Matthew puts in front of his reader until we come to 
chapter 21, verse 43, where Jesus looks at the Jewish leaders who have become hard-hearted, and he says, I am taking the kingdom away from you. Those who, who know the scriptures, know the promises of God, are physical descendants of Abraham, but have unbelieving hearts. And I'm giving my kingdom to a new nation. Those who do the will of God. Believing Jews, believing Gentiles. in one new messianic community and assembly that we call the church. What a glorious thing to see the response of the Magi. But what a terrible and indicting thing it is to see the response of the Jewish leaders. And I'm afraid that here this morning, those who are listening and whatnot, that there's probably very few who are listening in a hostile sense that are in the Herod category. Most of us are going to be either in the Magi category or in the Jewish leader category. And so my challenge to you from the response of the scribes and the chief priests is those who have been trusted with the word of God, man, you've been given a high responsibility. Don't blow it. Don't ignore it. Don't cheapen it. Don't get comfortable like the Jewish leaders did. Even though they were oppressed by Herod and that awful regime, they kind of carved out their little cultural place to exist and they found a way to kind of mutually exist with Herod and kind of live their lives and not get too freaked out. And that's why they had trouble with Jesus. He was stirring the pot. They wanted to kind of keep things on the even keel. You know, they lived in nice houses. They had made a nice living and they weren't getting, they weren't, you know, being killed by Herod every day. Herod gave them some space. They were able to live with that. Sometimes we negotiate these things with the world. But don't. Don't do that. Don't get comfortable with a little piece of God that can be kept, uh, safely kept over in the corner or tucked under a napkin somewhere off to the side. But let, let God come and be the king of your life. So those are the responses. Let's not be like Nero. Let's be wise in navigating with Nero and living for God. Let's not be like the scribes, half-hearted, calloused, inactive. But let's be like the magi who spared no expense to worship the king for the one simple reason is that he deserved it. And they didn't. And they were glad to give and realize that they, find, they found their identity in his identity. What is the only fitting response to Christmas? Unreserved worship of the King of Kings. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word.